0: Right, so joining us on the line at One Thousand One Heroes Podcast is Fox and Friends television news co-host and acclaimed author Brian Kilmeade here to talk to us about his new book, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans. Brian, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, thanks. Yeah, we're just uh, enjoying this run, trying to keep up with Donald Trump and do some book interviews. So it's enough to keep you busy.
0: <laughs> I really enjoyed reading Andrew Jackson as well as your books, George Washington's Secret Six and Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. You have a terrific knack for picking great subject matter and making history come alive with stories that keep the reader on the edge of his seat. You also do very well with the human side. This was a classic underdog story.
1: It is. I think it's underappreciated. Usually when we deal with our presidents, we talk about people from you know, Monroe, Jefferson, Madison, Washington, they were all well-to-do. They had money and everyone knew them. They were founding fathers. You have Andrew Jackson, who had absolutely nothing. In fact, by 14, he had no family. They were all killed in the war or died during the war. Dad died before he was born. And not many people in the, at that time, especially would have given him a chance to ever be known, let, let alone become a lawyer, a judge, an attorney general, a congressman, a senator, uh, a major general. And he always wanted to be called general his whole life. That's how proud he was of it. And then a two-term president. That, to me, is what I hope your listeners would understand, take away from this more than anything else, is that even back then without any social programs or or, or thinking, Grow Rich wasn't published then or Power Positive Thinking, he was just determined to be successful.
0: What inspired you to focus on Andrew Jackson this time around?
1: Well, I'm coming out of Jefferson, and I want to do something different. I don't want to do something that's plowed ground. I don't think I could do it as well, and it's been done so well. I can't do a definitive biography I thought if I could pick a battle, if I could pick a moment, and I could bring it to life and just talk about the significance of it. And I think we found it in the Battle of New Orleans because even though technically the war was over, the British had every intention of holding on to New Orleans and stopping us from growing past the Mississippi and controlling the mouth of the river, which means they would have controlled all of the commerce that was going through. And we would have stunted our growth or stopped our growth maybe forever. And if it, it wasn't for this stunning victory against the British, uh, against an army for the most part that Napoleon got crushed by, Jackson was able to rally his troops put together a battle plan for, for able us to win. So that, that's why I thought it would be right. So
0: set the stage for us. What was the situation for the U.S. with both the Indians and the British in 1812?
1: Well, put it this way, the Indians were radicalized in many cases by British, who would arm them, radicalize them, support them, and say, listen, if you win this battle, you can keep this land. So he had to fight the Creeks. He had to fight the Red Sticks. He had to go have a few Indian wars in between, and because the British had their surrogates fighting, but when he came to taking on the British and getting Mobile and stopping them from boarding there, and then stopping in Pensacola, he knew that these battles were big, and it showed a tra- change in the war, but he knew the ultimate battle was going to be New Orleans. And that's where the British got their reinforcements after defeating France and they were going to invade and hold. Meanwhile, John Quincy Adams and company were negotiating a peace treaty, but we were getting killed, so we really didn't have much to go on. Things began to change when Jackson got involved. And then when Jackson was able to rally the city, was able to uh, triple his force from 1,400 to 5,000 and take on 10,000 British troops, he was able to put together a flawless battle plan and in the documentary we did, you actually see the floor on which he wrote the battle plan with some, what, his other officers in um, the French Quarter of New Orleans. He was able to put together his flawless battle plan and things broke our way. And not only did we win, we won it within 45 minutes. He was able to get them to redig the Rodriguez Canal, make a wall, put cannons through that wall, use everything metal in the town. When cannonballs ran out, they were putting doorknobs and, and, and doors into the cannons. And using free men of color, Cherokee Indians, Choctaw Indians, uh, pirates, uh, Tennesseans, Kentuckians, regular militia, and everybody else, they were able to really have the British walk right into uh, the crossfire. And they they took them out in devastating fashion.
0: It was amazing to read that uh, Davy Crockett and Sam Houston were both uh, fighting with him in the Indian Wars. Did they also fight with him at New Orleans?
1: Uh, David Crockett didn't, uh, and, and Sam, David Crockett was there, but Sam, Sam Houston wasn't, but they would play a key role with Jackson's entire life, including Sam Houston getting the support when Jackson was president to take Texas.
0: Was Jackson accepted in Washington, or was he considered basically uncouth, more of a people's favorite than a polished politician? Not like And to add, was he similar to Davy Crockett in that respect? 'Cause Crockett also served and I think it was a congressman.
1: To, right, and similar to Trump. And yeah. no one liked him in Washington. So Jackson took his case to the people. And he really won three elections. One was he won the popular vote, but it got it was so close in three ways they cut a deal and John Quincy Adams ended up being president. Then he destroyed Quincy Adams in the rematch, never accepted, never thought worthy. People thought the world was gonna come an end to it. He took power. And he was popular with the people, but not with the establishment. And that's, where, that's what I think I admire most about him, is always looking out for the underdog. He hated when people were picked on. He hated to see powerless people. And he wanted them to use him as an example. Look where I was, look at who I knew, which is no one, and look where I ended up.
0: He had a pretty humble beginning. Could you describe, describe uh, Andrew Jackson's youth and what made him into the man he became?
1: Well, I mean, Andrew Jackson grew up and his dad was a tough guy, not a, uh, not a means. His mom was an extremely hard worker and tough woman. Uh, they're married. Uh, they are uh, trying to struggle to get things uh, going. They have two older. He has two older brothers when his dad suddenly dies. And his dad dies suddenly, and actually, something kind of comical, they kind of lose his casket. Everyone gets drunk at his funeral. They lost his body for a while. But he ends up growing up, his mom doing every job possible. In fact, his family that was there, he put his family, other family members would make their family work for them to earn money. And then when the war starts, the family all hated the British because they were Scottish by descent, and they hated the British, period. So they could not wait to get a shot at them. The older brother dies of heat stroke in one battle. And then Him and his brother, who's one year older, were scouts and lookouts, and they got caught. And when they get caught, uh, one of these soldiers says, "Shine my shoes, I had to walk through the mud to find you. He refuses. They come up with a blow they try to kill him, and he put his hand up to block it. And he'd have those scars the rest of his life. His brother wasn't quite as quick, took a, a full blunt force to the head. He would never fully recover. They would get imprisoned, walk 40 miles barefoot. And his mom worked at a deal, a prison swap, get them out. The brother is so sick, he dies on the walk home as soon as he gets to the house. So Andrew has to give up the horse and, you know, basically walk the whole time. The mom realizing it's just him and Andrew, she goes to get a job. working for one of the relatives. And she dies. So he finds himself all alone after the war knowing one thing. He vowed revenge on the British for doing what they did to him. He never would get a president his entire youth. He moved from family to family. And one thing his mom always told him, don't, Seth, don't, you know, don't sue for slander. Settle your scores yourself. So he was a handful for people to have in the house. They kind of kicked him out often. But he learned a lot. The town would raise him. He'd find money to go to law school. When he started winning his cases, he said, don't give me money, give me land. And you see the hermitage today. It's this huge uh, swath, this huge estate. that goes on and on. And uh, Jackson, the poor guy with no means, ends up being one of the richest guys around. And then when he became a lawyer, a judge, and a congressman, senator, he also served in the militia. And he begged to get involved in the War of 1812. But the Washington establishment wanted nothing to do with him. And then when all these other guys were washed up, and Monroe took over as Secretary of War, that's when he said, okay, let's let Jackson go to work." Jackson wipes out the Creeks, stops the British in Mobile and Pensacola, and then makes his way to New Orleans to form a force and put a stop to the British aggression.
0: What took place there at the Battle of New Orleans, and what were the odds against him going in?
1: Uh, Unfathomable. I mean, what took place there is the British. They were able to anticipate where the British were coming in. When they came in, as soon as night fell, they rolled a barge up and started shooting cannons into their camp. And then they attacked in pitch black with hatchets and guns. And in pitch black, some of the most brutal fighting you could ever imagine, hand-to-hand, took place. And when the when they, when Jackson voluntarily left the battle, they said, oh my goodness, this is not the same American force that we've been running through in Baltimore and Washington and throughout the East Coast. Jackson had his men militarized. They were radicalized. They were ready to destroy. And when Interesting side note is one of the reasons Jackson was giving, He it, like, said, you know, well, how do you motivate your guys? He goes, we didn't have to. This is our home. We have nowhere to go. The British could always go home. When you have nowhere to, when you have nowhere to go, you fight uh, because there is no tomorrow. And what was at stake is our entire Mississippi. And then every day that they would line up, he would go realize the British had one way to New Orleans. He was able to box them out, build this small wall, re a canal, get the whole city involved. Uh, deal with the Ursula nuns who formed a hospital and then said a series of parades and team-building atmospheres for lack of a word, uh, Lack of a better word and the team building would lead to a cohesive unit Who knew their mission if anyone stopped firing if anyone lost their nerve Jackson was right there to whack him and shoot him He would shoot deserters and he would have shot him there so they feared and revered him when the battle finally takes place the British plan of having ladders go against the wall and they fly over the water, so apart when no one ever showed up with the ladders. We think it was the Irish ship. We knew they think they figured out it was a suicide mission. and didn't show. They also plan on getting behind enemy lines by going up the Mississippi. The problem is the tide changed, and they were unable to go up. They went down. So the people that were supposed to go behind the lines and provide a second front uh, weren't able to. So therefore, Jackson only had to aim straight ahead. And the British in their bright red coats were sitting ducks, and it was a slaughter.
0: It's amazing, that your stories about the soldiers who fought for Jackson. These guys absolutely loved him. Um, it sounds a lot like Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. That's a, that's a book I hope you guys do. Tell us a little bit about the group of men who who backed him at New Orleans.
1: Well, they were motivated, Cherokee Indians, Choctaw Indians, pirates who knew the area. They also knew how to get the guns and Flint, necessary to arm. We also knew a lot about the British and where they'd land. They also knew the topography and where the weak parts were. They also knew how to, get the, uh, to do the best they can to wet down the swampy areas so he knew how far the line should go. The Pirates played a big role in extending the line so the British couldn't get around back. And then you had the Tennesseans and the Kentuckians who were these expert uh, shooters, and one of the reasons they're experts is if they didn't kill their game, they didn't eat. And they used to say that they were so good at shooting that they would be able to tell who shot who because they were able to pick out, they were able to brag about being able to take, uh, put a bullet in between a squirrel's eye. And for a soldier, they would go up to the dead soldiers and say, it's got to be you, it's a little high. So they were expert marksmen. And even though the British had fought over and over again and even took on the French, they said they never saw fighters like this American force. And they called it some of the most brutal fighting, period. And it seems to me almost like a pinball game where, as soon as they stepped up, Americans would mow them down. Only a handful even got to the wall, and they were just gunned down immediately. When it was time to surrender, uh, this guy, uh, Colonel Lambert, tried to surrender, and they wouldn't see him. And Jackson was asked, Why wouldn't you see Colonel Lambert? Because they never heard of him. It wasn't until Colonel Lambert said, You killed all my other officers, I'm the highest rank left. Two generals, seven colonels, something like 50 officers wiped out. And when you wipe out a British officer, you wipe out all their leadership. And when you wipe out their leadership, they have nowhere to go. And when they have nowhere to go, they die. And that's exactly what happened.
0: The Battle of New Orleans took place after the British burned Washington, D.C., and the Capitol. What did that do to American morale? And how important was winning at the Battle of New Orleans to America?
1: Uh, it was invaluable to win that battle because uh, number one, when they burned Washington, a lot of the country didn't want this war. But when they burned Washington, the ambivalence pretty much left, except for some of the northern states. And because it was, they cut to the heart of the country, and there was a sense that maybe the whole country could die. This American experiment would, would not exist. So there was, uh, there was a sense of when Francis got key on down, we got to rally for the cause and get out of this, because our Second War of Independence could cost us our country. So that was it. Also, there was a war. There was an honor among thieves in that no one really burned each other's capitals. Paris and London weren't burned back then. You know, you didn't you didn't burn Berlin, and when you burn Washington, they said, you know, what is a disrespect? Again, why would you burn Washington? We don't do that. So that added to it. America fights best when our backs are against the wall. When they burn our capital, and our five foot four inch president with a cold is sitting on a horsehole by himself, watching his house burn and the entire city on fire that's when the country realized, okay, we better get our act together. And they showed they would at the Battle of Baltimore, and then they showed that then Jackson getting involved really rallied the country. In fact, on, on January 8th, 1815, for every year, it was the second biggest holiday in the country after the 4th of July, up until the Civil War. And Jackson was so famous at the end of it, he was able to propel himself into uh, becoming a two-term president. One fascinating
0: and uncomfortable part of the book was how sick Jackson was at that time. Tell us about his grit and endurance, and what he and what he persevered through.
1: Uh, he had dysentery, and he was down to 125 pounds at six one. was pretty famished, um, and able to. And I talked to people who had it, and they said it, they, they said it's extremely painful, but yet he spent the, almost the entire time on his horse. Uh, going from uh, surveying the battle scene, trying to figure out a battle plan that was going to be successful, so they say it's almost impossible to smile during this period. But yet he did. It's 41 years old without his wife, and they describe their relationship with his wife very similar to Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. They only really needed each other, and all alone, trying to trying to rat, you know trying to make sure his men are there, knowing the odds are stacked up against him. He still uh, was able to overcome the dysentery and the pain. And he also had a bullet in his chest from a duel, which he thankfully survived and almost lost his arm. So he was hurting, and that makes this whole thing even more extraordinary.
0: The descriptions in your book of his letters to his wife, and especially the scene where he and his wife were dancing, I think it was at a White House ball. Correct me if if I'm wrong on that one. But it really showed his love for her, uh, and it was a a great part of the book, because it made that, among other items, for for it— Especially adopting an Indian boy after battle showed that he had a very caring side.
1: He did, and uh, he had a very tender side. And his wife came and met him in New Orleans, and he was very slow to believe the British had quit. And even uh, he was waiting for final word. He thought they were going to have to fight again at Mobile, and he thought the British were just fighting another day. So he accepted their uh, their surrender, but he didn't think they surrendered for the war. And just as he was about to engage, what the, they the, the was about to start up again not in New Orleans, but elsewhere, the word came out, treaty of getting sign of this thing is over. And then they had a ball and a celebration. And that's the thing that relaxed Jackson when his wife showed up and they danced and evidently she was short. And if you go to the hermitage, there's a museum there. They have his actual size. He's kind of tall and lanky, And you see her who's probably about five foot three and a little heavy. And they thought them would be an odd couple, but everyone that was around her was impressed with her. And she really acted like the first lady of New Orleans while they were there waiting to find final word about, you know, about the battle and the war.
0: There's been a lot of mention of Jackson in the news, especially in the past year. One, I recall, was they uh, were trying to remove him from the $20 bill. And I'm going to ask you in a moment uh, where that stands right now. And I also wanted to ask you uh, what, uh, what's the status on his statue, which they're threatening to tear down in New Orleans.
1: Statue stays, and he stays on the 20. As long as, uh, as long as President Trump is President Trump, he's not good on the 20. They didn't make a big deal of it, but it's pretty much understood. Uh, they don't want to start causing any more uh, angst because Harriet Tubman is an unbelievable American. But they, she, shouldn't just re, she shouldn't replace Jackson, in my mind.
0: Jackson's detractors always bring up the fact the Indian removal of first. How historically can we picture that uh, in terms of what was needed at the time and what has changed in terms of the thinking in in 150 years?
1: Well, look, uh, what are our our issues today? North Korea is one issue. Immigration is another issue. If you go back to those days, Indian issues haunted every administration dating back, you know, all the way through Lincoln, up until Teddy Roosevelt. My goodness, it was always a controversial situation. So they, he had the biggest problem where they're looking to expand and Indian nations were everywhere. And I have not studied this at length, but clearly the Trail of Tears, a bad move in the winter to march them to Oklahoma. You've got to be kidding. And it wasn't president at the time. It was a plan that was in place, but he wasn't president. That was Martin Van Buren. But, you know, there's no doubt about it. He was an Indian fighter, but everybody was an Indian fighter that was in the military. And and America, wanted to, you know, move forward. And America wanted to grow. And the Indians, were they looked at standing in their way. And like it or not, that was an issue of today. And we're going to look back at 200 years and going to go, how could that be a major issue? People are going to look at our generation and judge it. I'm not making excuses for slavery. There is none. It's, in, it's uh, egregious and, and at every level. I'm not making excuses for the Indian Removal Act, but I will say this. I've never been president when hostile Indian nations were attacking settlers who were unarmed. I've never been uh, president or a part of a generation that had to deal with uh, Indians that were upended by Americans that weren't holding to their word or cut bad deals with them. Uh, So I don't put myself in that. Just know that every president had to deal with that issue.
0: For our younger fans, how important is learning history? How important are museums,
1: battlefields, and statues? Uh, Invaluable. Perfect people aren't on statues. Significant people are on statues. You could talk about it. They want to put a statue up in, in Jefferson and talk about the uh, you know, uh, founding father of the country, vice president, president, secretary of state, author of the Declaration of Independence, Louisiana. They want to do that, and you want to write down there, but uh, had 27 slaves, uh, even though he knew slavery. You want to put that on there? I'm fine with that. Go ahead, put a plaque on it that said, however, abhorrent to. Uh, all those great things. The fact that he, the critics would point out that he had X amount of slaves. If you want to say that Jackson had slaves and they ran his uh, farm, it couldn't absolutely. But you should write too that, that slaves lived on after his death and but he didn't free them after his death. But they were so close that they never left. But I just think that to take him off the twenty, to not see the Hermitage is a place you have to visit as an American. To not study Jackson because he had slaves and you don't like the way he handled uh, the Indian issue at that time, I think is misguided.
0: This book is a real page-turner. I've studied history as part of what I do for a living, and I go through a lot of history books. And this is written so well that it literally just keeps me going from page to page because every single scene is so well-researched and well-done and well-presented. It just uh, has captured my interest all the way through. I want to compliment you and Don Yeager on this. I was hoping you could fill me in a little bit on Don Yeager and his role in these books.
1: I, you know, I hooked up with Don through sports, and we were able to put, uh, put together Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and uh, this one together. And uh, he's got a lot of experience. He's got third, about 35 books out there. So um, this is just this is my fifth. And uh, thankfully, it's still now in his 12th week in the New York Times list. I think it's number seven. So Jefferson was on for 16, so we're, we're going to hope to break that one, uh, that personal record. But I'm already flattered by how many people seem to uh, f- to like the book. So I really appreciate your interest, too.
0: My wife read uh, Washington's Secret 6 before I could get my hands on it. It was captivating. It inspired me to do a two-part series on the Unsung Heroes of the Revolution. I did get a chance to plug you. Uh, in that one. That book was, I, I did read it after she was done. She loved it. And I read it as well. And it was absolutely great. So thank you very much for what you're well, doing. Thank you very much. What do you guys have I planned? You're very welcome. What do you guys have planned for the future? What do you have planned for the future?
1: No idea. Uh, you know, I've just, this has been a, a full-time job on top of my two full-time jobs. So I'm um, going to try to keep it. I'm uh, going to try to keep it going for a little while longer. And then I'll maybe think about uh, another project. But it's been six straight years with the paperback and everything, uh, writing and promoting. So I do need to get a hold of my schedule to a degree. I'm sure you could. I'm <laughs> sure you can understand that, John. Right?
0: I, I, absolutely do understand that. Yeah, I've had I've made a couple of moves lately that, uh, that are trying to offer me up more time.
1: So thanks so much, John. I appreciate having me on.
0: Thank you very much. Go get him. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, 1001 fans. I hope you enjoyed our author interview with Brian Kilmead. He just skimmed the surface on the story, which, as I said before, is a real page-turner. I highly recommend the book. I'll leave the link, I'll leave the Amazon link for the book in the show notes for you. Meanwhile, we appreciate your reviews very much at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com and at our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. Thank you very much, everybody out there. We've got a lot playing, a lot going on, so stay with us. See you next week. Bye.